whenever, um, like the couple times that David has asked me to do something, like lead or teach or whatever, I'm always like, David, what should I teach on? And he always says, oh, like whatever's on your heart, which is like, that's a big range of things, you know what I mean? And so, so um, anyways, um, I'm not a big journaler. And well, I don't journal, in fact, at all. I don't do it. It's always been really different. I've tried a hundred times, I can't do it. Um, but if I had a journal, this is probably a lot of the stuff that I'd be writing in it. It's just stuff I'm learning. And um, so I'll just say off the bat, like, half of this probably isn't even original because it's just, you know, stuff that I'm learning and stuff that I'm taking in right now. There's two um, pastors and authors I really look up to that their fingerprints are all over this. One, his name is John Mark Comer. The other one, his name is Mark Sayers. I brought the book just because I'm going to be using it a lot tonight, but it's called Reappearing Church. Um, it's ironic because the cover just dis <laughs> disappeared while I was reading it. I know I don't think that was on purpose. I think my palms were really sweaty, knees weak, arms were heavy, like 2005 m and and uh, so anyways, <laughs> um, so it's not, a, it's not like a marketing tactic or whatever, but uh, any, so I just want to give credit where credit's due, it's, you know. So anyways, just thought I'd say that up front so you all don't think I'm smarter than I am. <laughs> but anyways, um, so we're going to be in Matthew 16 tonight. I probably should have said that first. So if you want to open up there. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll give you all a second to do that. In fact, no, I'm just going to pray again. You can never pray too much, right? God, thank you so much for letting us all come here tonight um, and just hear your word. Lord, I pray that um, you speak to all of us personally and individually through your word. God, give me um, the right words to say, kill my nerves. And um, I, God, I just pray that we all walk away, changed, like David said, just applying it um, and, and not just hearing words, but being able to do them as well. And it's your spirit in us that allows us to do that. And it's your name, son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, Matthew 16. Uh, we're going to be starting in uh, verse 13. So I'm just going to read a little bit and then we'll hop in. So starting in verse 13. I'll give you, I'll give you all a second. We good? Okay, great. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the Son of Man is his favorite title for himself. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So they think he's a prophet, you know, he's clearly something. Uh, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Which, by the way, is the most important question we can ever answer. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I love that verse, by the way. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. He was not a marketer, clearly. Um, so when Jesus asked Peter, Who's everyone saying that I am, by the way? I'm just curious, what's the talk on the town? Everybody starts identifying Jesus as a prophet. He's, you're either John the Baptist, who recently died, um, or you're Jeremiah or Elijah, Jer you know, sort of these great prophets of the Old Testament in Israel's history. <coughs> and Jesus is kind of like, okay, cool, good to know. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And he says, well, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Some of your translations might even say the Christ. Don't know about you, that's always been confusing about me, for me. So, quick, 
a brief biblical theology of what the Messiah is, because that's not a word that we normally use all the time. And so I think sometimes we're reading the Bible and we hit words that we think we should know and we don't, but we're embarrassed to not to say something because we don't know what they mean. And so we just go, okay, yeah, he's the Messiah, but we don't actually know what the Messiah is. So going back all the way to the beginning of the Old Testament, in fact, when creation started and it was all good and then it all was not very good because Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, there's a specific little thing in Genesis 3.15 that if you want to be fancy and theological about it is called the Proto-Evangelion, which just means the first gospel. And it says that through the seed of Eve will come someone who will crush the head of the serpent who deceived them, but his heel will be bruised by that serpent. It's the first time the gospel is preached in the Bible because it promises that God is going to send someone, an individual, who will put an end to all the evil that has just happened in the world. And so there's a promise made right there at the beginning of, of Genesis. You want to know why most of your Old Testament is like, not most, that's an over-exaggeration, but like probably too much of your Old Testament is genealogies? It's because they're tracing that lineage to see who is that coming seed that is going to put an end to the evil one. That's what's happening there. And so you get to Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he makes a promise with Abraham in Genesis 12 that says, okay, it's come to you and now I'm, it's going to go through you. And so out of you is going to come a nation. And then there's the whole deal with Sarah not being able to have kids and she laughs and it's funny, but it's not really funny to God at all. And he says that that nation that comes from you is going to be a blessing to the world. And so from the seed to Abraham, to a nation. And the purpose of that nation is actually to be a blessing, God's blessing to the world. And so then you get a whole bunch of the other Old Testament. They go to Egypt, they come out of Egypt, they go into the promised land, they screw up in the promised land. It's all kind of messed up. Um, and then you get to David. And David is the pinnacle of the kings of Israel. He's the best one. Saul was the first he didn't do very good, but David was, when you think of the great people of the Old Testament, it's really Abraham, Moses, and David. Like those are your three, that's your Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament. And so when you get to David, uh, David finally becomes king after a whole lot of soap opera drama. And he gets, uh, he's anointed, and then God makes a promise straight to David. And it's in 2 Samuel 7. You don't have to turn there unless you want to, but I'm going to read it for you. And this is the promise. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 11, he says, The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. David had actually just said, let me make a house for God. And God goes, no, 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 you're not going to do that. Actually, someone else is going to do that. But I will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up after you a descendant. Sounds familiar? Who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Sounds familiar? When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave from him, as it did when I removed it from Saul. Remember, that was bad. Whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever and so this whole time there's the promise of this one who's going to come and crush evil and then it's going to come through israel and then he makes a promise to david that said it's actually going to come through you and they're expecting a king to come who god will not remove his favor from that his throne will reign forever and ever and ever in justice and righteousness and all the things that they're promised in the old testament 
And so that's kind of even the whole book of like first and second Kings. That's kind of what's happening. Like, is this the king? Definitely not. Is this king? Nope. Is this king? He's bad too. Everyone screws up over and over and over again. And then they go into exile and it's a mess. And then uh, they come back and it's not the same as it used to be when David was king. And then the Old Testament ends and there's like nothing for 400 years. And then the first words of your New Testament are the genealogy, again, genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. That's on purpose. Like, okay, this guy is, he's in the same line as David and Abraham. They're importing all those blessings, all those promises that was made to those two people onto (laughs) Jesus. And so the Messiah actually is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. It's the same word in two different languages. Christ isn't Jesus's last name. It's his title. And it actually means the anointed one, AKA the king. So when Peter says to Jesus, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God, he's saying, you're the king. You're the king that we've been waiting for. The one who is going to crush the serpent's head. That's going to be a blessing to the nations that your kingdom's going to rule forever and ever. Your throne will never end. I think you're the guy. And Jesus says, yeah, actually you're right. But don't tell anyone. That's a whole nother sermon for another time, probably. But Peter clearly has high expectations for Jesus because Jesus is the king that's going to rule forever and ever. Uh, But now that they know that Jesus is a long-awaited king, how do you think they expected him to rule? Like David did. They expected, oh, David 2.0, but better, you know? And so he's going to kill Goliath. He's going to build an army. He's going to take over the promised land. You know, it's like, it's going to, we're going to take over the world with this thing, right? But then what does Jesus actually tell them next? Well, that's the next couple of verses. So verse 21, remembering Peter's expectations as we get to this. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples. I love that. Oh, by the way, I just wanted to point out. (laughs) Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and then be raised on the third day. Well, that's not what kings do. Kings like, I mean, come on, David, like, who is this guy out of nowhere, kills the giant? I'm the king now, you know? And it's like this really huge thing. And they wanted a conquering king who took over everything. And then Jesus shows up and says, yeah, you're right. I am that king. By the way, I have to suffer and die. And Peter's expectations are shattered. You see that right here. Jesus, uh, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Thing you should never do, rebuke Jesus. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Makes sense. I mean, that's exactly what Peter thought would happen. Or that's exactly the opposite of what Peter thought would happen. And then Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. Bad day. On this rock, I'll build my church. Way to go, Peter. Also, you're Satan. And, uh, <laughs> and so why? Why does, that, why does Jesus call Peter Satan? You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. So all of Peter's expectations, all the things that he's waiting for, he's been, the whole history of Israel has been waiting for this. Jesus says, it is me, and, but this is how it's going to happen. You're right, but it's not going to happen the way you think it is. Peter's not happy about that. He says, that's not how it's going to happen. And he says, you're thinking about human concerns, not God's concerns. So Peter's expectations are crushed. He doesn't get it because Peter wanted Jesus' kingdom without Jesus' way. 
He wanted all the benefits of Jesus' rule without doing it the way that Jesus Jesus wanted to do it. And so I think we all find ourselves in these conversations in this, in this place sometimes because he ends up getting to a place where he goes, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And I, I end up, I hear that a lot lately. I don't know about you. I don't know if it's my generation. I don't know if it's just this age in general, or maybe this is, I don't know, everybody. But what I've been hearing a lot in conversations with people is it's just not supposed to be this way. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Whether that's like some situation, a lot of times with people my age, it's around jobs. Like I know several people that have been going through job transitions and they thought that the job that they were going to was gonna give them life and it actually got, life got harder. And they sit down across from me and they're like in tears almost. And it's like, it wasn't supposed to be like this. Their expectations for the way it was supposed to go were crushed. But I don't think they're to blame for that. Like we're kind of set up for failure in a lot of ways. Peter isn't alone in thinking that things aren't going the way they're supposed to. We all think that. And there's reasons why for it. If you go back to the beginning of the Enlightenment with Rene Descartes, I know you didn't expect Descartes to come into this. <laughs> it's the, it was a radically new way of thinking about ourselves because what is Descartes' famous ph- philosophical line? I think, therefore, I, think, therefore, I am. So his predominant way of thinking about humanity was we are thinking things and no one had ever really thought this way before. He, I just, man, he locked himself into a room and he said, I'm going to doubt everything. And the one thing I can't doubt, that's the bedrock of truth. And the one thing that he couldn't doubt was that he was thinking blows your mind a little bit to think about, but that's kind of, that's where he ro- he arrived. So he's the first person that wrote it down at least to ever start with himself to prove the existence of God rather than proving our existence by starting with the existence of God. So rather than God is creator and made us, and that's the truest thing about the world. And then I'm the recipient of that. It was, I have the capacity to think that God was creator. Therefore, I'm the center of the universe. And it was really the first time that as a collective sort of consciousness, humanity was placed at the center of the universe rather than God. Not that God hadn't been misused and abused and all that kind of stuff before then, but as a way of viewing the world, we became the center of existence. And then in the 1920s, this good old novel you've heard of came out called The Great Gatsby. And Jay Gatsby, man, he has this line that it hits me it, it hits me and I hate that it does because it tells me how true it is. He's just talking to um, uh, Carraway, Nick Carraway, right? Of basically like how he fell in love with Daisy, but he couldn't, you know, it was kind of like this forbidden romance thing and Daisy went on off and got married and he's, he's full of despair in this moment. And he tells him and a comet like flies through the sky and he points to it and he says, my life has to go like that old sport. It has to keep going up. And so we end up with this idea of I'm at the center of the universe and my life has to keep going forward. There has to be progress in my life or I will not be fulfilled. And then just a few years ago, okay, so this book came out that became a movie and I had never seen it. I'll be honest, this is why it's in here. Katie and I watched it on Monday for the first time. That was an experience. Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert, anybody? Anybody? Man, that book was on the top of the charts for like over a year. And it was like this like very popular movie, very successful. I mean, she got, you know, she's like Oprah's best friend right now. And uh, if you don't know this story, Eat, Pray, Love, she goes through this divorce, bad start already. She goes through this divorce and she leaves her husband um, to go on this seven month trip. And so it's kind of her eat, 
three months, pray three months, love three months. That's sort of how she broke up this trip. So she goes to Italy and like eats all the best foods and just lives like the life that you can imagine, like the life we all dream of, that's what she lived in, in Rome. And then she goes, okay, now I'm gonna go to India and I'm gonna find God, I'm gonna learn, I'm gonna find myself, I'm gonna learn how to pray. So she goes to India and studies kind of with the Hindus and she does that whole thing. And then she goes to Bali, which is where you go to find love and she found love there. And uh, she married a guy and, Anyways, that's sort of her whole story in that book and in that movie is her journey through that. And something in the, the movie, I haven't read the book, but the movie struck me while she's in India praying with the Hindus, there's sort of this like key line. It's like right in the middle of the movie too. It's pretty important. And she says, I discovered that God is within me. Not bad yet, right? As me. God is within me as me. So that God isn't even, we don't even prove our own existence like prove God's existence by ours anymore. I am God. And so she finds, oh, by the way, also go Google uh, Elizabeth Gilbert right now. That guy she married in Bali, she divorced six years later. So it didn't even, even that, literally the last scene is them sailing away, like in the Bali, beautiful Bali ocean, you know, on the sunset. It's, it's cliche to the max. And then six years later, they divorce. So it's not the life that it's all cracked up to be. So even her, she left to find herself, but she lost everything that had mattered that gave her, that gave her meaning. And so she gave herself, and I'm going to come back to this, high, high, high amounts of freedom and she lost meaning in relationships. This is what Mark Sayers, the book I was telling you about, he calls it the kingdom without the king. And this is his quote on that. The new Jerusalem at the end of the age is substituted for a human utopia. The salvation of humanity by God is supplanted by humans gaining redemption and bliss through their own effort. The historian Christopher Dawson notes that what is known as the belief in progress would often be more correctly described as the belief in human perfectibility. Hence, driven by the belief that we can attain perfection without the divine, faith in God gives over to faith in ourselves. Thus, the secularist progressive myth seeks to gain the fruit of God's kingdom, such as justice and peace and prosperity and redemption, but without the king. And here we arrive at a critical insight that we must grasp as we examine our culture through biblical lenses. In the post-Christian vision of the world, progress replaces God's presence as the engine of history. And so we've removed God from the center of our universe, placed ourselves there. And, we, and I think we can understand the appeal of this, right? You want all the blessings of God within none of the authority of God. We don't want to submit to everybody, but we want everything that's good and right and true and beautiful. But the problem is that God is the source of life. He's the source of all those things. And so when you cut yourself off from that source of all the blessings, you actually end up striving to get them yourself, things that were meant to be gifts to you in the first place. You reject the gift and you work hard for it. And so you end up in some really familiar places that we're going to come back to in just a few minutes. But here's my point I'm trying to make here is that when we don't seek first the kingdom of God, we are sought out by the kingdom of the world. And that kingdom brings destruction and ultimately death. And when our life scripts that we live by, the stories that we tell ourselves that we trusted in, that we thought were true, and they start to fail us, where does this leave us? It's not supposed to be like this. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. This is the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Welcome to Bible study tonight where I'm here to tell you your life is meaningless. <laughs> But the point is this, 
We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. So what's the alternative? What options do we have when we're in a situation like this? Well, when we reach the bottom of the discontentment that we feel with our own lives, we have two options. We have despair. I think we see a lot of despair. Or we have dependence. So what does Jesus say? Let's read verse 24. Then Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? It's funny that Jesus said that he has to suffer and die and Peter said, no, 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 that's not gonna, what's going to happen. And he's like, no, actually, I am going to suffer and die. Oh, by the way, you actually have to take up your cross and come after me. You know that take up your cross and follow me? What's the first thing Jesus said to his disciples when he called them? Follow me. And that's what they've been doing. And they still don't get what following Jesus actually means. It means taking up your cross, losing yourself, and following him. But what does that mean? He says that, remember, he just told Peter that I am the king, but this is the way that it's going to come. And for Jesus, it was a physical death. But for us, it's death to all other kings and all other rulers, or as Jesus puts it, human concerns. I, Romans talks about how we're all slaves to sin. I think sometimes we think it's like these malicious things that we do, but actually anything that we give ourselves to that's not of God is sin right? It can actually be a good thing that we give ourselves, but if we place it above God, it's still sin, and it says we're slaves to that. I don't think sometimes we see every day human concerns is something that we're enslaved to or a king that we're serving, but Jesus says, actually, it is. So what, are, what do we do? How do we do that? Well, two ways. First, Jesus says, take up your cross and lose your life. So what I would say to that is we must restrict our own freedoms in order to eliminate everything that drains us from life in Jesus. We must restrict our own freedoms in order to eliminate everything that drains us of the life of Jesus. So after we take our cross and follow him, it says, or take our cross and lose our life, he says, follow me and find your life. And so the other side of that coin is we must change our lives to be centered around three things, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, in doing what Jesus did. And that's where my art project behind me comes in. Okay, so this is what Mark Sayers talks about in this book, and I kind of hinted at this a second. You see someone like Jay Gatsby or Elizabeth Gilbert who has high freedom. She, there, nothing is off limits in her life, right? And so there's, Mark talks about how there's really three things that every human needs. And he calls them tanks, like think like filling up. The first is freedom, just the ability to choose, to have options, to be able to be upwardly mobile and to, you know, to not be restricted by um, systematic oppression or anything like that. We need freedom. Uh, the other thing that we need is relationships. We are relational creatures. And that's why the moment we put our phones down and we're silent for a second, we feel very lonely. It's because we're relational creatures. And then the, the third thing, pretty basic, is meaning. That as human beings, the three things that, the three tanks that we sort of hold in our hearts are freedom, relationships, and meaning. And that where we're at in our culture right now, and, I, and here's the thing, it's easy to blame culture, but I think we have to really inter look inside and go, where is, where is this in me, right? Because we're all influenced by culture even as we rail against it, right? Something we don't like to admit. Is that as a culture, 
our freedom tank is overflowing right now. We've never had more freedoms. Nothing has ever been more accessible. We've never had more available to us at the same time. Regardless of all the bad things that's going on in the world, this is the best time in history to live because we have access to so much more than anyone has ever had in the world. And so we have high, high, high freedom, so much that it's overflowing. But our relationships and our meaning tanks are completely depleted. What Mark Sarah says is he says, we are overflowing with freedom and we're thirsting for meaning. And so the only way in order, well, and so one thing, okay, so I'll come back to that. One thing he talks about is that we're all systems. I know we're getting kind of down into like systems theory here, but we are just like any other system. What you put into it is what's going to come out of it, right? And so we are all systems and this is the system. And so anyways, when you put into your system things like individualism, where we get Rene Descartes. Thank you very much, sir, for that. We get hedonism, right? Uh, Elizabeth Gilbert going to Rome, hedonism. Oh, I'll define this. Individualism being I am my main reference point for life. Um, oh, actually, I'm going to put that after. The second thing is actually deconstruction, which means who knows what's true anyways? Like, it's impossible to know. Every, there's so many different opinions. How can we even know what's true? After that comes hedonism, and then after hedonism comes consumerism. We're all influenced by these in ways that we would prefer not to admit that we are. Consumerism is a little bit more will make it all better. Just a little bit more. And this is what we're putting into our systems of freedom and relationships and meaning. And because of that, we're getting an overflowing of freedom, no relationships, no meaning. Because here's the thing, if I'm the center of the universe, then I'm the authority for truth, right? And then if I'm the authority for truth, well then, I mean, I don't know that much. You know what I mean? Like, I, like that breaks down really quick. If I'm the authority of truth, then how do you know truth anyways? Like, how does that even come? Well, if there, you know, if there is no truth, forget it. Let's live it up. It was one life we got. Let's make it count. Don't, anyway, yeah. It was like, let's, let's go all in. Let's go to Rome and eat all the best food and go to India and go to Bali and all that stuff. And then after that, hedonism gives way to consumerism where we become addicted. This is us with our phones right now is we're so like just a little bit more will make it all better and we actually end up distracted and this is what we, we put into our lives and what comes out is anxiety depression you guys know there's a loneliness epidemic right now where um they're actually opening up loneliness they're uh they're opening up cuddling cuddling cafes in japan right now where people can just go and pay someone 20 bucks to cuddle with them uh because they have that little of human interaction and that's starting to influence a lot of businesses over here so there's a loneliness epidemic um man i mean you can go on and on what else oh tribalism do is there any tribalism going on anywhere yeah okay some tribalism and then uh finally Discontentment. We're just not happy. We're just not happy with anything anymore. And it's like, well, what are we putting into our lives? Well, we're putting all these things into our lives. We have never had more freedoms than ever before, but we don't have the relationships that we have. We're totally disconnected. We're the most connected generation ever, and it's actually creating the more disconnected connectedness than ever, and it's leaving us without meaning. We have no meaning because we're too anxious, depressed, distracted, discontent to have any meeting in our lives. And so we need to restrict 
our freedom in order for us to be filled up with those. Because here's, okay, so there's another system in the Bible that talks about Psalm 1. Are you all familiar with Psalm 1? Talks about a tree. I don't know why there's an abnormally large tree in the corner of this room. <laughs> but it works perfect. But I don't have to draw it and I get to spare all of you that. What does Psalm 1 say? How happy, happy is the one that meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. He'll be like a tree flourishing by streams of water who bears fruit in and out of season. So think of that Psalm like this. What's the input into the system? God's word and God's way, right? How happy is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. By the way, on that word meditate, I was reading this thing uh, for class just this past week from a Puritan named Thomas Watson. It was just like, it was literally like, you know, principles for reading your Bible. That's all it was. And one of the things he said was the reason we come away cold from our Bible reading is because we don't warm ourselves by the fires of meditation. Not really part of my talk, but man, I've been thinking about that a lot. And so... If what goes into it is God's word and God's way, and you become like a tree that's bearing fruit in and out of season, the output is fruit. And we know what the fruit is. It's love and joy and peace. And that sounds a lot better than that, what we're actually living with right now. And so we need to actually change the way that we're living to restrict our freedom so that we actually gain relationships and gain meeting, change our outputs from individualism, deconstruction, hedonism, consumerism to God's word and God's way, where that becomes the primary input in our lives and the output becomes love and joy and peace. By the way, Psalm 1 is meant to bring you back to the Garden of Eden. Like it's meant to say, look, this is, that tree is the tree of life. And so when you're living like that, it's like you're back in the kingdom with the king again. You got him back. And so as Jesus said, if it's possible to gain the whole world, but lose your soul, the opposite of that means we have to renounce the world to find our souls. That's what we have to do. The life of love and joy and peace that Jesus offers us right now in the kingdom of God. So how do you do this? Last time I taught, Lieta went, but how? <laughs> <laughs> learning a lesson, learning a lesson right now. Yeah. Oh, you're going to say something? Yeah. Oh, you said how. But how? Yeah, perfect. Thank you. you. What you do is you get rid of all your freedoms and you give up your free will and do God's will and become rooted like the tree mm. and meditate and do his will, mm -hmm. your will. Because every time we just do something that we want to do, it's because we want to do it. Right. But if we stay rooted and meditate and give up our free will, even if we cast out every thought, we are giving up our free will. So therefore, we are emptying all of those. We, have, we are meaningless. We have no relationship except with him. Mm. And we give up all our freedom and our free will. So how do you do that, right? Because Jesus, you see this with multiple times of Jesus saying, not, my, not the Father's will, or not, no, definitely the Father's will, not my will. <laughs> this is when I get dragged off, right? The heresy. Not my will, but your will, right? Not my will be done, but your will be done. Or that line in John where he says, I only do what I see, I only do what the Father tells me. What if it's possible to live like that? I only do what the Father tells me. Isn't that amazing? So how do you do that? Well, there's this thing called spiritual disciplines. I love this. A discipline is any activity I can do by direct effort 
that will eventually enable me to do that which currently I cannot do by direct effort. So think of like literally anything else in your life. Think of piano or sports or whatever. Like when you first did it, you were bad. It was not good at all. <laughs> and you probably felt like quitting. But for whatever reason, who knows why, you stuck with it and you did it over and over and over and over again. And now you are like an amazing cellist, an amazing singer, an amazing businessman, or like whatever it is that you do. No, no. Yeah, I was talking to him behind. Yeah, sorry. But, <laughs> but you became very good at it because you kept with it over time. And I think, that, first of all, that's an important principle is anything, like any discipline, the spiritual disciplines are hard at first and you fail. And I think a lot of times we beat ourselves up and give up rather than accepting the grace that God gives us and saying, no, actually, I took a step forward today. I'm going to take another one tomorrow. I love Dallas Willard's definition. It's a bit wordy, but I think it's a great one. The disciplines are activities of mind and body purposefully undertaken to bring our personality and total being into effective cooperation with the divine order. They enable us more and more to live in a power that is strictly speaking beyond us, deriving from the spiritual realm itself. Here's my summary definition. Spiritual disciplines are things we intentionally do to fill ourselves with the life of God. I think sometimes we get uh, scared of the spiritual disciplines because we don't wanna like earn our faith. We don't want to feel like we're going against salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. You know what I mean? And so Dallas Willard has this great line where he says um, that Christians are saved by faith, but paralyzed by it too. It's like we receive God's grace for salvation, but we don't receive his grace for our lives. Can you just repeat that definition? Yeah, totally. Um, spiritual disciplines, mine or Dallas Willard's? Uh, yeah, it's simpler for sure. Um, spiritual disciplines are things we intentionally do to fill ourselves with the life of God. So key principle, we don't do spiritual disciplines to earn God's favor. We do them to be filled with his life here and now. So if our goal is to renounce the patterns of the world and center our lives on the life of Jesus, what does that practically look like? So there's a, you could do a long list of spiritual disciplines. I was having a conversation with someone this week and I told them saying no is a spiritual discipline, right? But here's a short list. When it comes to how we think inputs, outputs, right? When it comes to how we think about truth, we renounce culture's definitions of truth and the false stories that we either have inherited or begun to believe and we receive God's word through scripture. Um, I, I was at this event. I wish Alan was here. I was at this event this morning with Alan and um, he shared his story for about five minutes. And one thing he talked about was when he was getting, he was getting saved, when he was saved, he, um, someone sat him down and started to teach him the Bible. And he said it was like he had, it was like a kid's puzzle, you know? He's like, I feel like I had the outer pieces all together. But when someone really showed me the Bible, it's like they started filling in the pieces. And I couldn't see it all, but man, that picture was coming together. Not just about God, but about life. And that's what happens when we fill ourselves with God's word through scripture. When it comes to dependence, we're all dependent. Um, upon something or someone, we renounce to being dependent on ourselves, first of all, and primarily on others, and we depend on God through prayer. When it comes to productivity, something I don't think we're about, how we actually get things done, we renounce busyness and hurry, with, and we go with God 
through Sabbath and intentional living. God actually established a Sabbath. Not he's, We just talked about this, didn't we? He didn't, you know, the Sabbath wasn't made for, no, no, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. This is a gift for us. What if we actually took God seriously and had a holiday every single week where we took the day off and we, and it's more than a day off. It's a day set aside for God where we actually rest, we receive his life and presence and I would love what John Mark Homer, one of my favorite pastors, talks about. He says, on, two, on uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I know I can get through because I'm looking forward to the Sabbath. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I know I can get through because Sabbath is coming. Like, it all is, it, it's kind of the center holding of your week. When it comes to the relationships that we have, we uh, renounce toxic relationships and we embrace Christ-centered relationships in the church. When it comes to our mental capacity, how we even, how our brains are functioning, we reject noise and distraction. We reject noise and distraction. We reject noise and distraction. (laughs) And we meet with God in silence and solitude. I think silence is probably one of the most important spiritual disciplines that any of us can do in 2019. Because everything is so noisy and we're always so distracted. What would it look like to actually just get silent? Not even like, God, can you give me this? Can you give me that? Just silent before the Lord. In money, we renounce stinginess and greed, which are just two sides of the same coin. And we go with trusting God through generosity. It's not mine in the first place, so I give it freely. And so though these are practices, through these practices, we are no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but we're conformed to Christ's image through renewal in God's presence. And so the disciplines are a means to an end. If you try to create a checklist and white knuckle it through and ah, I messed up again, you're not going to experience the life of God. They are means to an end for us to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and then ultimately do what Jesus did. And if you're not doing any of these things, there's no judgment, there's no condemnation. It's just an invitation to a new way of living, that it's possible to trade worry and depression and anxiety and loneliness and angst. And I don't know if anyone else has any angst. I just feel that a lot sometimes. And more with the life of Jesus. But he will not, he's not going to like, I think, man, this, I feel like I grew up thinking this, that God was just going to zap me one day. You know what I mean? Like, oh, now I'm saved. Um, Either now or later, he's just going to zap me and I'm going to be like Christ. You know what I mean? It's just going to like, surely I can't be the only one that feels that way sometimes. But that's not how this works. He said, take up your cross and follow me. That's a thing that we do. It's not earning your salvation. It's getting Christ into us, the life of him into us. And so if there's something new for you, I want to ask you, where can you start? Don't feel like you need to take on this whole list by day. Just what's my next step? The goal isn't to go from like zero to monk. You know what I mean? It's like, what is my next step today? You know what I mean? Just someone who's like totally, like only silence and solitude. You know what I mean? Like praying seven times a day. Like that's not the goal necessarily. But um, at that event today that Alan and I were at, we didn't go together. I just looked across the room and I was like, Alan, what's up? Um, And then he was sitting at the speaker's table and I was like, that's cool. Um, Can I sit with you? Um, But this guy, he gave a talk. He talked about, it's kind of a leadership talk and he talked about reframing. Um, He told the story of, I heard it this morning, so I'm going to butcher it. I'm sorry. But I guess there was like this really important baseball game. I don't follow sports. This really important baseball game a few years ago where the, the athletics, the athletic, they're all athletic, right? But there's a team called the athletics, right? You're dying right now. You're killing, I'm killing you. I know. Yes. 
<laughs> I know. <laughs> and uh, Oakland, Oakland A, so Oakland Athletics. Thank you, Moneyball, right? Okay, so I redeemed myself. Okay, and um, so they were playing the New York Yankees, right? So it's like the best team and the worst team, and they're playing each other. And the Oakland A's are up by two points, uh, and if they win this game, then they go on to the World Series, and if they lose the game, they're out. And they're up by two, and then it's like the last inning, and then the uh, the Yankees get up to you know bat, and he the pitcher chokes and he basically gets he you know he hits a guy with the ball he walks and then he walks the next guy and then so it's bases you know bases loaded no outs ninth inning whatever and so the coach comes out and whispers something to him on the mound and he kind of like laughs or whatever you know <laughs> and everyone's kind of like what the heck you know this is the most pressure ever and he's laughing he kind of says a couple other things and he goes back and this pitcher for like the worst team in the league, you know, basically strikes out the next three guys They go to the World Series, the rest is history or whatever. And so the big question was, well, what did the coach tell the pitcher? Like, come on, what happened, you know? And so the thing that he told the pitcher, he walked up to the pitcher, puts his arm around him and goes, hey, how you feeling? Pitcher's like, man, I feel awful. I can't feel my legs. And the coach goes, hey, that's okay. You're not here to kick a field goal. <laughs> And so, exactly, he laughed, you know, <laughs> and he says, you are a professional glove hitter. He's like, there's, don't think about the fans, 40,000 fans, don't think about the guys on base, you're a professional glove hitter. You gotta hit the glove the next three times. That's all we're paying you to do, basically. Lots of money to do, by the way. But, and so here's the deal. It's not to go, like I said, from zero to monk, right? It's how can I hit the glove tomorrow? It's not how can I get to the World Series of being like Jesus, becoming, you know, with Jesus, doing what Jesus did. It's how can I do one thing tomorrow that gets me that one step closer. We got our whole lives. Again, I was talking to someone. It's, I think, my generation, too. We want everything right now. Whatever it is, we want it right now. And maybe that's everybody. It feels like my generation a lot. And one thing I've just really come to learn is, like, I'm young, you know what I mean? Like, I've got my life ahead of me. If there's this business guy I follow, he has like a thousand person marketing firm in New York. His whole life's goal is like buy the New York Jets, which is meaningless, but like whatever, you know? And he says, he's, he's like, I'm 43 years old. If you 20 year olds knew how I felt right now, you'd be a lot more patient because I feel great. I feel like I'm just getting started. And I think we need to learn a lot of patience too, all of us. And especially when it comes to being like Jesus, like, it's going to take time, you know, because we're not Jesus. And so for some of you, this might literally be waking up a few minutes early in the morning, just thanking God for your day, that you woke up again, maybe reading a psalm, reading Psalm 1. The scripture and prayer are God's primary ways of speaking to us. And doing it tomorrow is not going to change your life. But doing it every day for years and years and years on end will. Can some of my older saints give me an amen? <laughs> amen. You're the cutoff. You're like the, you're the threshold right there. Exactly. Barely made it. I know. For others of you, and this is something I'm learning right now, you're too busy to be with Jesus. I think a lot of times what daunts us about this is like, oh man, another thing that I have to do in my already busy life. There's no way I can do that. And so what I would say is maybe you're too busy to follow Jesus. And maybe the thing you need to do is not add something to your life, but actually see what you can remove from your life so that you're not hurried and busy and distracted, but you actually have margin in your life to become a person of love, joy, and peace like Jesus is. And so, see, I, I really think 
Okay, so this other book I'm reading right now, it's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. So Dallas Willard mentors a guy named John Ortberg. Did you know, you know who John Ortberg is? He's a pastor in California, big church, whatever. His mentor was a guy named Dallas Willard who passed away a few years ago. He's on the phone with Dallas and he says, hey Dallas, you know, I'm on, I'm on doing the mega church life. We just went up to six services. I'm exhausted. I, I don't have any time for Jesus. What do I need to do? And he says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And the guy's like, okay, yeah, yeah, cool, cool, cool. What next? And he's like, no, no, no. Hurry is the enemy of the spiritual life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And if you think about it, the times we are all at our worst is when we're hurried. Like when you're scrambling out the door because you're late to get somewhere and you forgot something, you have to go back and get it. Are you just like overflowing with love and joy and peace and meaning and you know what I mean? Like that's when you're at your best. No, it's when you're at your worst. It's when you're actually worst. John Mark, one thing he says, he says, hurry is incompatible with love because we are too busy to love the people that are in front of us. We're too busy for those relationships. We have freedom. Oh man, yeah, I'm out of here. Lots of, I'm changing the world, right? but we're out of relationships and therefore we're out of meaning. And so maybe for some of us, it's actually doing an examination of what in our life, even good things, not bad things, but good things that you just need to say no to in order to actually make space for the life of God. And so without judging yourself, because I love there's this line in Paul that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he's like, yeah, I don't judge any of those people. He's like, I don't even judge myself. Like, God judges me. Like, I'm just trying to, I'm just doing the best I can. Like, I'm not even going to put those, that judgment on myself. So no judgment, no condemnation. Ask yourself, what inputs do you need to remove from your life? And what outputs can you replace them with? We're Christians, right? So we say that we believe following Jesus is the road to life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. But our lives are the true test of how much we believe that. Jesus said, we will know them by their fruit, but what does it look like when the fruit of our lives is discontentment with everything that we have? So if the primary thing we feel is discontentment, it might be time for something to change. That old business thing, the system you have is perfectly designed to get the results you're getting. Maybe it's time to change our systems. But Jesus offers us a different kind of life and a life of love and joy and peace in the kingdom of God here and now. And ironically, it's when we lose our lives that we actually end up finding them. So let's pray. Jesus, you are so good to us and you have wisdom that goes against every grain, every fiber in us because it's hard. But God, it's, you actually said, but it's not hard. It's an easy yoke. The burden is light. But God, we have to make space for you. We have to make space for you, Jesus. And so, Lord, I just pray that you begin to show us what inputs we need to remove from our life begin to fill us with your word and your way because God, we want to be that tree that is planted by streams of water that bears fruit in and out of season. We want to be people who are filled with love and joy and peace. So when that people do come to us and they say, what, how are you like this? You're like, it's Jesus. And I, and I don't even do all these other things so I can make space for Jesus because this life is just so good. God, please take away our discontentment, our angst, our anxiety, our loneliness, fill us again with meaning. Fill us again with your meaning, God, because everything is meaningless apart from knowing you and serving you and following you because you're the only thing that lasts. Get our minds off of the things below and onto the things that are above. It's your name that we pray. Amen.